Good morning. Uh, glad that you are here with us today, worshiping at Three Rivers. And uh, today we are going to begin a couple of weeks looking at uh, biblical eldership, talking about some general concepts there. Uh, Mitch is going to be speaking in a little bit more detailed next week on that. Uh, a couple of weeks after that, Josh Pilgrim is going to be talking about what does it mean to be a biblical church member. Uh, sometime in November, Nathan Hicks is going to come back and talk about uh, biblical deacons and what that looks like. Um, as we have just kind of come through this, as Mitch says, 972-week or whatever it is series on fellowship from First John. Uh, that's kind of where we're going over the next few weeks. And so uh, as we start this morning, I want to see how many of y'all have taken note of, how many of y'all have been affected by, impacted anyway, by the federal government shutdown that we've had. Anybody? We were impacted by this in our family. We tried to go camping over fall break and we got to the campground and realized we thought this was a state park, but it's really a federal park and the gates are locked. What do we do? Um, we found a better spot actually to go, so it worked out great. It was fantastic. <laughs> but turns out that 17% of being shut down actually can affect us. Um, Without throwing stones at either political party this morning, that's not my goal, um, regardless of your political affiliation or ideology, I want us to take comfort in the fact that we are governed. We have an earthly government, but ultimately we have an, a heavenly king. And we are told that of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. That he will reign forever and ever. That his reign is perfect. That his reign is righteous. That his reign is holy. Um, we can be thankful that he does not need our wisdom. He does not need our wealth. He does not need us to agree with what he wants to do. Romans 11, 33, 36 tells us, Oh, the depths of the wisdom and the riches in the, of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unknowable his paths. Who has known the mind of our God? Who has been his counselor? Who has given to God that God must repay? For from him... And through him and to him is everything. To God be the glory forever and ever. And so when we come to worship together this morning, we, are, we come in the atmosphere and under the, the earthly reign of a government, but we also come to a higher king whose perfect, righteous government will be established forever. God has no failed economic projections. He has no deficit spending. He has no resources that run out. He does not kick his obligations or our guilt down the road for somebody else to, to deal with or for somebody else to pay for later. He did that in our place for our sin on the cross in the person and work of Jesus. And as we celebrated in communion today, we can know that our sin is paid for once for all. Uh, and there is no reckoning of it later if we are in Christ. God is the judge of all, but he is also the one who makes us just in Christ. And so we have peace with him when we come in this morning if we have trusted in him. Jesus made us this incredible promise in John 15:16. He said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, and so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. That is a pretty amazing promise about what, what Christ has appropriated for us. Whatever we ask in his name, he says, it's yours. Isn't that awesome? So with all of that kind of as an aside, 
looking at earthly government and the, the kingly government that we ultimately serve, I do want us to talk about government still in a sense in the church. Um, it's not necessarily government per se. It's more leadership structure. But I do find it very interesting that a lot of times as Christians we get caught up in our local politics and our state politics especially in our national politics and knowing all the intricacies of how things work and what the issues are that we're debating and all these things. And yet we don't maybe necessarily think so much about, okay, well, what does the leadership of the local church look like? What should that look like? How is that established? And where do we, where do we go to in Scripture to get our, kind of our marching orders and our, and our ideas and understandings of, of how we do things? So I want to talk a little bit about that this morning. I want to kind of look at the 10,000-foot view and this is kind of different for me this morning. Typically, you know, at Three Rivers, we are a very expositionally driven church. So we, we take a passage of Scripture and we walk through it, uh, sometimes painstakingly slow. Sometimes we'll take larger chunks and look at them. This morning, I'm not going to be necessarily walking through a passage of Scripture, but I want to jump through a bunch of different passages um, to, to kind of show you principally how we uh, have come to the, some of the conclusions that we have. Um, and I, I want to tell you at the front end as well, we say as a church there are, there are certain issues theologically that are open-handed issues for us and that are some that are closed-handed issues. So a closed-handed issue would be something we would not negotiate on, that we say these are essentials of the faith, right? So the deity of Christ, the authority of Scripture, the Trinity, the virgin birth, those are, those are closed-handed issues that we say these are, these are really essentials for what it means to be a believer in Christ. There are more open-handed issues where we say, these are issues that we believe passionately about. These are things that we, we, from Scripture, believe as we've studied and reasoned. But we also recognize that there are areas for disagreement among believers. And you're not, just because we may disagree does not put, us at, put one or, of, uh, or the other of us outside the faith. However, we do believe that it's important for us to, to look at Scripture, to know what we believe, to try to follow Scripture as best as we can. And so that's kind of where I'm coming from on, the, on this issue of church leadership, church governance. This for us is not an issue of you're in the kingdom, you're out of the kingdom. But at the same, on the same hand, we also do believe uh, that it, it ultimately matters. It's not just an, an issue about structure A or structure B because there are theological implications that flow from this. There, there are real ministry implications that flow from this. So if you've been here for any length of time, you know that Three Rivers is an elder-governed and led church. So today I want to talk a little bit about the nature of the church, introduce and give you guys a little bit of background on why we believe that a plurality, I have a hard time saying that word, but basically more than one, elders is the, is the biblical model. Um, and I want us to, to look at some scriptural support of that. And like I said, Mitch is going to come back and talk a little bit more next week, uh, more particulars, more um, issues of... How, how is that done on a more practical level? Um, so I want to kind of do the 10,000-foot the view. I, I don't really have any hard and fast numbers on this, but anecdotally I would say, just from talking to a lot of you guys, that most of you that come to Three Rivers from some other kind of church background come from some church background that is not like Three Rivers, at least in our leadership structure. That's my background. I grew up in a Baptist church that was a congregational church that was a democratic uh, in their, in their uh, way that they handled things. They voted on everything down to how much do we spend on coffee. Um, and so some of those things are, are just very different than the way that we do things. And so, I, like I said earlier, 
I don't want to I don't want to draw a hard and fast line between folks in this and say you know you're either on this side or this side. But I do think that theologically these things do have implications for us, um, and so it does matter. And the reason that it matters is that if we say we are people of the book, if we say that, as Mitch is fond of saying, that this is our manual, right? That, that this is our authority for life and practice and in, in everything that we do then we need to take seriously what we read in it. We need to examine it. We need to see, okay, what, what does the Bible have to say on this topic? And then how do we best implement that? We need to take some of, maybe our, some of our preconceived notions and strip those away and come back to the text and say, what do I see here? What do I observe here? What's going on here? And then how do we model that? How do we put that into practice? How do we do that? I really came to that point in kind of an odd way on some other areas in seminary when I was being taught one way and really began reading my Bible critically and asking some questions and thinking, okay, well, I've never thought about it from this other perspective before, but why does the text say this? And why, why does everybody assume this over here when the text actually says this? Um, and I think that's, that's something that we need to do in all areas of, of our Christian life is go to the text first. What does it say? What do we learn from that? And then we need to align ourselves to the text and not try to justify, okay, this is what I think, so how can I find a proof text to back up what I want to say? Alexander Strauch wrote a book called Biblical Eldership that we've been reading through with several guys uh, that are looking at this, this whole process of eldership right now. Um, and I'm drawing some, some of his arguments this morning, uh, but one of the things that he said, I think a, a very powerful quote, he says, some of the worst havoc wrought to the Christian faith has been a direct result of unscriptural forms of church structure. Only a few centuries after the apostles' death, for example, Christian churches began to assimilate both Roman and Jewish concepts of status, power, and priesthood. And as a result, Christian church government was clericalized and sacralized. Under Christ's name, an elaborate structure institution emerged that corrupted the simple family structure of the apostolic churches, robbed God's people of their lofty position and ministry in Christ, and exchanged Christ's supremacy over his people for the supremacy of the institutional church. Bronson's been teaching a class on church history the last few weeks, and those of y'all that have been in there have seen some of what Strauch is talking about, how that has played out through history, and some, both positive and negatively. And so before we get into a whole lot more about the structure of the church, I want to talk a little bit about the nature of the church that we see in, in Scripture. How do we define the church? What does the church look like? What, what, how would we define who the church is and what its purpose is? Uh, I want to give you three things really quickly. One long version, one short version, and one biblical metaphor I think that we see over and over and over again. Okay, so here's the long, theological, complete uh, version of what, what does it mean to be the church? The church is a community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. In obedience to Scripture, they organize under qualified leadership, gather regularly for preaching and worship, observe the biblical ordinances of baptism and communion, are unified by the Holy Spirit, are disciplined for holiness, and scatter to fulfill the great commandment and great commission as missionaries to the world for God's glory and for their joy. All of that is true. That's a, that's a lot more than what I want to get to this morning. Um, maybe a shorter version. This is something we talk about in our membership class, right? And you guys remember this whole concept that we talk about of the radical life from John 15? And we say that there's basically three stool legs of the church that make up 
the, the, the essential nature of the church. If you take one of them out, the stool falls apart, right? So you have communion with God. Anybody remember what the next one is? We've been talking about this for 786 weeks. Community with each other, right? And then anybody remember the last one? Collision with culture, right? So we know God. We have communion with Him. We have an intimate, personal worship with Him. We have a corporate worship with Him. We have community. We have fellowship with each other that is so much deeper than than uh, flower-shaped cookies and sitting around having coffee, right? And there actually means something. We've been talking about that for a long time now. And then collision with culture. We we take the gospel. It rubs off on people around us, right? So we are to be salt and light. We are to bless our community. We are to be sharing the gospel in both word and deed. Um, that's essentially what it means to be the church. And I think the best metaphor that we see all throughout Scripture of what it means to be the church is the metaphor of the family. You see, in over 400 times in the New Testament alone, um, the New Testament authors address the church as brothers or sisters or as a family. And I just want to give you a real quick smattering of, of some of these um, there's a whole lot of other analogies that we see. We see the body. We see a flock. We see, as Jeff talked about this morning, we, we are referred to as sheep sometimes. Um, we're referred to as the bride of Christ. But, but the dominant characteristic, the dominant metaphor that we see in the New Testament is, is that of family. And a lot of times you see the author refer to Christians as brothers. And if you look at, at the, the language of that, it's, it's a inclusive brothers and sisters. So when you hear brothers, think everyone, okay? So just listen to this kind of a smattering of this. 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and there be no divisions among you. 2 Corinthians 1.8, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. Galatians 1.2, Paul and all the brothers who are with me to the churches in Galatia. Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Colossians 1.2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. 2 Thessalonians 1.3, we ought to always give thanks for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. 1 Timothy 4.6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And Hebrews 2.11, speaking of Jesus, for he who sanctifies and those who who are sanctified, all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. James 1.2, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So you see this metaphor over and over and over in Scripture, that to be part of the church means ultimately it's, it's a family uh, relationship. It's a very close relationship. It's not, a, it's not a hierarchy, right? I mean, how many of you have CEOs in your family? How many of you have a board of directors in your family? None that I know of. Uh, it might be kind of a weird dinner conversation. It, the, the, old, the dominant metaphor that we see throughout Scripture is that of a family. And the New Testament displays that practically in a whole lot of ways, right? The, the early church met in homes. They shared material possessions. They ate together. There's several occasions Paul talks about greeting each other with a holy kiss. That's a little bit different cultural thing than we have today, so maybe we don't do that. They showed hospitality to each other. They cared for widows. And when it was appropriate, they disciplined their members. 
when someone was caught in sin, there's an issue of discipline that's always rooted in love and geared towards restoration of that person. So all of that is why, as we've been talking about fellowship for so long now, that's why fellowship is important. Because if you don't have fellowship, you're placing yourself outside the bounds, outside the protection, outside the ongoing relationship of the family to be cared for, to have your needs met, to have an opportunity to serve and to be served. And it's the place that Jesus established as the, as the most natural place of flourishing for those that are his followers. Jesus actually insisted that his followers were true brothers and sisters and that none of them should act like the Pharisees of his day. And he, in Matthew 23, 5 through 8, he talks about the Pharisees who elevated themselves above other, above other people and really thought of themselves as, as more important. And this is what he says. Speaking of the Pharisees, he says, They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. Do you see the, the flattening of the structure there? The family relationship there. This is not, a, again, it's not a hierarchical kind of thing. It is a, a bit more, much more of a flat structure. Strout commenting on this and a couple other passages says, In complete obedience to Christ's teaching on humility and brotherhood, the first Christians and their leaders rejected special titles, sacred clothes, chief seats, and lordly terminology to describe their community leaders. Part of this is why I'm dressed the way I am this morning. Right? I, don't, I don't have a clerical collar on. I'm not wearing vestments. I'm not, I don't have a big pointy hat or whatever else goes along with that. There's not a hierarchy here. There's not a sense that I'm a, a lordly baron looking down on everyone else and you guys owe a certain tribute or, or anything else along those lines. The church is a family. And I think Martin Luther correctly, he was reacting against this in the Reformation. He threw off that. He said, you know what, I'm just going to wear the garb of a professor. I'm going to wear a simple robe of a teacher um, as as a correct rejection of what had developed within the Catholic Church at that time. Um, And he had had embraced so much of the the power structures of the world around it and so much of the lording it. Uh, lording power and prestige and position over other people. So I say all that and say that, you know, the church should be a, a flat structure in a lot of ways as far as we're all part of the same family, and yet every family needs structure, every family needs accountability, every family needs leadership. But at the same time, just as you don't need an elevated title, you don't need to be a CEO in your house, you don't, it doesn't take a graduate degree necessarily to <laughs> a hope to be a mom or a dad or to to be a brother or a sister, it's not necessarily required in the church either. Now, don't hear me saying we're anti-intellectual, we're anti-education, or we're anti-learning. I certainly believe wholeheartedly that we should be trained up well and we should pursue knowledge. We should pursue that with our whole heart. But I don't think that necessarily you have to have a title, you have to have a seminary education, you have to have whatever to be a leader in the church. And I think so often what has happened is in the Western church we have professionalized and clericalized and in some ways kind of mysticized what it means to be a pastor, what it means to be an elder in the church to the point that the average church member has become convinced that maybe they're, they're less than, they're a second-class citizen, I'm not as holy as. That's something that's just for somebody else. That's not for me. 
this applies to all of us. Every word of this applies to all of us, right? There's not, there are not books in this Bible that just say, okay, for the pastors and then for everybody else, don't read these. This is, every word of this is for all of us. There are no super Christians in the church, and none is more holy than the other by virtue of a title. And in reality, what does the Bible say about our calling? Ephesians 4.11 tells us partly that the role of pastors is given to the church as a gift for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, right? So the saints are to do the work of ministry. Pastor, we, don't, we don't believe that the purpose of pastors and elders is that they're the hired guns of the church to do the ministry. That's what we pay our pastors to do, although sometimes that gets communicated in our culture, right? That That's what pastors are for. That's what we pay their salary for. That's how we... That's the whole reason we have this set up is we pay them to do ministry. That's not what the Bible says. It says that they are there to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Um, so, it's a, again, it's a flattening of a structure. I love the fact that I get to be bivocational and Mitch is bivocational and, and our design for our church is that all of our pastors are bivocational because by the very nature, and I'm not saying that if you're, not, if you're full-time in ministry that it's a bad thing um, by any means, but I love the fact that we are one, because it puts me in the marketplace every day so that maybe I don't get isolated from everybody else and, and understand that people in business have real problems. People in the, in the workplace have real issues that they deal with. There's everyday life for everybody else that's the same as me. But I also hope that one of the things that it helps communicate to our church is that we're not super Christians. We're not any different than anybody else. Maybe we're gifted in a little bit different way. Maybe we're called in a little bit different way. But ultimately... I'm not any different than any of y'all from the day-to-day experiences that I go to. God has, has called me to a little bit different specific function and different purpose, but this is not a super Christians and, and everybody else is on some other plane. Every one of us as a, as a pastor deals with a lot of the same temptations that you guys do with, deal with. We deal with the need to repent. We deal with the need to, to confess our sin. Um, and we deal with you know a lot of the ongoing daily life just frustrations and things that you guys do. So I want to encourage y'all, again, the church is a family structure. The church is not a hierarchy. Um, there are specific roles that are fulfilled in that structure, and there are specific roles that are needed uh, to make that, that family structure work. Um, but this is not a, a first-class citizen and a second-class citizen kind of situation. So what does it mean to be an elder or pastor uh, in the church? Mitch is going to talk a little bit more specifically about this, but one of the things that I believe that you see throughout the New Testament is these terms elder and pastor and overseer are used interchangeably and synonymously. And I think interestingly, if you look, the word pastor is only used a couple times in the New Testament, and it's primarily used as a verb, like to pastor someone, to serve them in that way. Um, but, but the two words that you primarily see are elder and overseer, and what that role ends up looking like is an under-shepherd, um, a servant, a teacher, a decision-maker, someone who has spiritual responsibility for others to protect, to disciple, to uh, guard the truth of the gospel, to make sure that heresy does not sneak into the church and destroy the church from within. It's a joy, and at the same time, it's a weight to carry uh, as we look at what the Scripture tells us. It's not a click. It's not a board of directors. It's not a Lifetime Achievement Award for somebody that has served well in the body. It's not uh, anything other than a place of service. 
Um, and as we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks, but I think five of the main features that we see about what it means to be a biblical elder is it means pastoral leadership. A lot of what Jeff was talking about, about leading sheep earlier, that, that boils down to um, leading folks as well. It means shared leadership. It means having accountability there among a shared leadership group. I think sometimes we have this model in the, in the American church. We borrow so much from our American culture, we're not even aware of it. So we bring in this CEO model and say, oh, well, there's going to be one pastor. He's going to have ultimate authority over everything. He's going to hire and fire his staff. He's going to, we're going to set him up as basically king over everything. And what that does is it cuts that man off from accountability. Um, it cuts him off from fellowship with other people because he doesn't have any peers. It cuts him off from the ability to, for his family to have a normal family life and not be put up on a pedestal all the time and feel like everybody's looking at them and waiting for them to you know, somehow mess up or do something. So there's an aspect of shared leadership that needs to be there. Biblically, we look at the call that uh, pastoral leadership is ultimately male leadership, that it's qualified leadership, and there's some several qualifications that we see that we'll walk through, and that it is servant leadership. These pastors are called to be under shepherds to the chief shepherd, Jesus. They, you know, we, we talk about Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, and pastors may serve in some capacity as prophets to the people, but we are not priests, and we are not kings. First Peter 2 makes very clear that all of us that call the name of Christ, all of us that know him as Savior, are a royal priesthood, a holy nation set apart to know him and to serve him. So again, Mitch is going to speak more about that in the coming weeks. But interestingly, I think 1 Timothy 3, 1-7 through 7, sets, up, sets out all these character qualifications. This is not a complete and exhaustive list, but it's a, it's a pretty good list that Paul gives to Timothy about what, it, what do you need to be to qualified to be an elder. And I want you to listen to these and think of how many of these are specific to pastors and how many of these are for everybody, okay? Above reproach, husband of one wife, not a polygamist, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, manages his household well, not a recent convert, well thought of by outsiders. How many of those are specific to pastors? There's 14 of them there. I only count one. Able to teach. All the rest of those are things that any maturing Christian ought to be the embodiment of. It ought to be something that we all are working toward. That we ought to be above reproach. We ought to be the husband of one wife or wife of one husband. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, manage our household well, not a recent convert, um, and well thought of by outsiders. All of those things are things that, that as growing, maturing Christians, we ought to embody and epitomize. And so these are things that say, Paul says, these, if you don't meet these qualifications, these are things that exclude you from the ministry. Um, but these are not saying, okay, well, we've got a class of super Christians over here and then everybody else is something less than over here. The only real difference there is that calling and that gifting to teach the scriptures, the, the doctrinal piece, the leadership piece there. So as we have said before, I, I want to continue to make clear, the invitation to serve as a pastor or elder in the body is open to any man that qualifies. Um, that doesn't mean that, that everyone will ultimately 
step into that role or everyone will, will ultimately feel called to that role. But anyone who qualifies and whom the Spirit demonstrates the calling to serve. Um, now, obviously, in that, if somebody wants to serve in that role, you're not a leader if nobody follows you. So at some point, there has to be evidence that you're, you're serving in that role and you're doing it well and folks are following that leadership. Um, but this is, I think we've made this way too hard in Protestant churches over the last few years that we've, we've set up all these extra criteria and hoops that people have to jump through and maybe not necessarily what the Bible tells us about what it means to have qualified and, and scriptural leadership. Three Rivers believes that the biblical model of leadership and governance is one of multiple pastors and elders leading the church as under-shepherds to the good shepherd Jesus. And we believe that because that's the consistent pattern that we see throughout Scripture, uh, it's throughout the New Testament. And let me give you several examples of this. By the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fly through a whole bunch of these. If any of you guys want my notes later, I'll be happy to give those to you because don't feel like you have to write all this down. Um, but elders are found in the church in, Ju- in Judea and the surrounding areas in Acts 11. Um, the church at Antioch sent aid by their elders there in James, 4, or James 5, 14, and 15. And um, Wayne Grudem, commenting on this passage, quotes it, and then he says, he's, let me read the passage and then what he says here on this. Um, James writes, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This is a significant statement because the epistle of James is a general letter written to many churches, all the believers scattered abroad, whom James characterizes as the 12 tribes in the dispersion. It indicates that James expected there would be elders in every New Testament church to which his general epistle went, that is, in all the churches in existence at that time. I think that's a pretty significant observation that sometimes, again, maybe it just flies over our head. Elders govern the church in Jerusalem. We see that in Acts 15 um, and Acts 16, where the elders and the apostles settle this issue of does someone who is not a Jew and they become a Christian, do they have to be circumcised at that point? And they, they come together, uh, these two different churches come together, the apostles and elders, and, and settle that issue. Um, among the churches that Paul established, leadership by plurality of elders was established in the churches of Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. You can read about that in Acts uh, 14. In the church in Ephesus, you see that in Acts 20:17. We're going to come back to that a little bit. And in 1 Timothy 3 and in 1 Timothy 5. In the church at Philippi, Philippians 1:1, and in all the churches on the island of Crete. And you see that in Titus, where he tells Titus to appoint elders in all of those churches. According to 1 Peter, and 1 Peter was a, another one of those letters that was written to a bunch of churches, to a dispersed group of churches, so it didn't go to just to one particular church. Um, according to 1 Peter, elders existed in churches throughout northwestern Asia Minor, and Pontus, and Galatia, and Cappadocia, and Asia, and Bithynia. Um, and I, I think it's interesting, in this context, in 1 Peter, we get... Peter addressing the elders in all these churches. And then, as I talked about earlier a little bit, he, he talks about this doctrine of the priesthood of the believer in chapter 2. And then in chapter 5, he comes back and addresses the elders among them. And he talks about how they are to lead well. Um, and I'll, I'll come back to that passage here a little bit later. Wayne Grudem, commenting on a, a couple of these passages, says, Two significant conclusions may, may be drawn from this survey of New Testament evidence. First, no passage suggests that any church, no matter how small, had only one elder. The consistent New Testament pattern is a plurality of elders in every church and in every town. 
And second, we do not see a diversity of forms of government in the New Testament church, but a unified and consistent pattern in which every church had elders governing it and keeping watch over it. So we believe, again, this is an open-handed issue, but we believe this because that's what we see in Scripture. We believe that the biblical model for leadership in the church is a plurality of elders. Um, and there's instruction about elders given to the churches in the New Testament, some, some pretty explicit instructions about how to care for, how to protect, how to discipline, how to restore and obey and call elders. James instructs those who are sick to call for the elders of the church in James 5.14. Paul instructs the Ephesian church to financially support those who labor at preaching and teaching. Paul instructs the local church about protecting elders from false accusation and disciplining elders who sin and restoring them in 1 Timothy 5.19-22. Paul instructs the elders on the proper qualifications for eldership in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. And to the church at Ephesus, Paul states that anyone who desires to be an elder desires a noble task. And then he begins laying out those qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. Um, he instructs the church to examine prospective elders about those qualifications in 1 Timothy 3.10 and later on in 1 Timothy 5. And he instructs the young men of the church to submit to the elders of the church in 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Uh, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13.17 instructs his readers to obey and to submit to their elders and to not make their elders' jobs more difficult or diff, uh, than they need to be. And uh, on that point, I want to say to you guys, in 10 years, this has been a fantastic church uh, just for the, the general spirit of that and not having to deal with grievous issues of disunity in our body. And so uh, I do want to say thank you for that. We, I've been really blessed. We as a church have been really blessed in that. Paul teaches that elders are, are the household stewards and the leaders and the instructors and the teachers of the local church in Titus 1.7, 1 Thessalonians 5.12 and Titus 1.9. And he instructs the church to acknowledge and love and live at peace with its elders in 1 Thessalonians 5. You guys have done that here. And I, again, I want to say thank you for that. And in our theological or our denominational tribe in, in the SBC, the, the typical pastor's tenure is just over two years. And I think that's really sad in a lot of regards. I think that's sad for the church because they don't have the stability and the long-term impact of ministry. And I think it's very sad for pastors as well um, because they never really get the opportunity to know their folks and to, to lead and serve them. And so I think there's a huge benefit for, for longevity. And when we have the kind of atmosphere that has developed here, I think it's, it makes it that so much easier to have uh, when, when there's not infighting, when there's not bitterness, when there's not disunity. So again, thank you for that, and let's keep doing that. There are some instructions and some exhortations given directly to elders in Scripture, and uh, this is one that I want to hit on just a little bit more in depth. In 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5, Peter comes back at the end of his letter and gives some instructions to the elders. And listen to some of the commands that he gives them here. He says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Here's the first commandment. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And then he says, do it not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. He says, not for shameful gain. Right? They're not being it for the money, but eagerly. Do it with, with eagerness. Do it with joy. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. 
And when the chief shepherd appears, here's the promise. You will receive an unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then there's a passage in in Acts 20. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but this is really very fascinating to me. Um, This is Paul's, basically his farewell address. Uh, He knows that he is going to prison. He knows that he's going ultimately to execution. Um, And he calls together the Ephesian elders among whom this church he has spent so much time in ministry and basically gives them a farewell address. And I'm going to pick up in uh, 2028 when he begins. Before that, he kind of reminds them of his life and his ministry among them. And verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to you yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, reminding them that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish you, every one of you, with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. And all these things I have shown you, that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And then he says these words and he kneels down and they pray for him. And he gets on a ship and they never see him again. So part of this is this New Testament model that we have for eldership that is plurality of elders um, that I think you've, we've seen from the, from the New Testament. It is a humble servanthood. It is a principled leadership. It is to call people to know the Lord, to study his word, to live by his word. But again, this is not a, there's no hierarchy in this. There's no one is more important than the other. This is a family relationship. Um, and so part of, in saying all this, I want to reemphasize, I guess, the importance of what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. This is not a show that we put on every week. This is not an entertainment option. This is not a just a, another uh, social organization. This is the body of Christ. This is the, the only organization that Christ gave us for fulfilling his purpose on the earth. Um, and so... We're called to be some part of something extremely significant, and every one of us has a place to function in that. Uh, it just so happens that elders have a specific role in that, but it's not better than, it's not higher than anybody else's role. One of the things that has encouraged me the most as I've talked with some of you all over the last few weeks, and we, we talk about this issue of every Christian has an initiative to take, right? It's, it's part, of, part of discipleship is taking initiative to to do what it is that God has uniquely called each of us and gifted each of us to do. And one of the things that has given me a whole lot of joy over the last few weeks as I've talked to some of y'all that are beginning to really get that and beginning to really think, okay, God's given me a, a, a bent towards whatever it is, you know, whether it's gardening, whether it's running, whether it's whatever. Man, I can use that for the kingdom. I can serve in that aspect. And I want to continue to encourage y'all 
There is a place of service and ministry for every one of you. And I, I don't presume to know what that looks like for every one of you. But again, if we understand that the, the role of the church essentially is that of a family, there's a place of, for, for every one of us to serve and to be served, um, to meet others' needs and to have our needs met. So I don't have an elaborate way to wrap all of this up or to, uh, to maybe build this into some amazing crescendo and call you to action other than to say, what is it that God has, has, is calling you? What, what are the gifts that he has given you? And how do you fit into this big picture of the family? Maybe part of your, how you fit is to encourage others in their role. Maybe part of how you fit is to lead out in some ministry. Maybe how you fit is to come alongside somebody else. Um, maybe how you fit is to just be supportive of other folks. I don't know. Uh, but there's a role for everybody. And I, I want us to be constantly about seeing where, where do I fit. Again, this is not a show. This is not a, this is not a production. This is the family of God. Um, one of the one of the applications, as well as as we are in this process of determining um, what does our eldership here look like and and growing that that body, uh, one of the strong encouragements I want to give um, the whole church is to love and encourage those who are doing that and specifically um, specifically encourage their families. I will tell you as a pastor the way that you can bless me the most. And the way that you can bless these other guys the most is to bless their wives. So bless these guys' families as, they are, as they're walking through this process and uh, so can, to see how they can best serve. Um, again, all of us need to take that role of initiative. We, don't, we said earlier, we, we don't pay our pastors to do ministry. Pastors are there to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So what is your place of ministry in these walls, outside these walls, in this family, in the greater community? to be salt and light in Rome and Foley County and to the ends of the earth. And lastly, I want to say before we, before we begin to respond in music, um, I, I never want to, to walk away from a time like this without saying maybe some of you's place this morning is that you're outside the family of God. Maybe you are not yet in Christ, and maybe you need to respond for the first time to knowing who he is and what his ultimate call in your life is. And if that's you this morning, I would love to talk with you. I'd love to talk to you more about the gospel and what that ultimate call on your life is and how you can be reconciled to him and be part of that family called the church. It's, a, it's an imperfect family with lots of warts and lots of maybe crazy uncles and th- other things like any other family, and yet it is the method, it is the way that God has chosen to display his glory on this earth and to draw people to himself. So let's stand, if you will, if the band will come on back up, and let's begin to respond in singing. Um, If there is a need in this room that you know of, if there's somebody that you need to pray for, if there's somebody that you need to pray with, um, then I would encourage you to do that. Some of our deacons will be in the back. I'll be in the back if you would like to pray with someone there. Um, But let's begin to respond to who God is and what he has done. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Um, I pray this morning that your people would be encouraged and taught by your word. I pray that you would, by your spirit, um, apply uniquely to each of us what it is that we need to hear in this. God, I pray that you would get me out of the way and uh, help your folks hear you and not me. 
God, I pray that you would help us to respond well to your revealed word to us, to bring every thought and practice under the subjection of Scripture and of the Gospel and of Christ. And God, I pray that you would cause us to walk out of here to be salt and light and to do that with great joy. And pray this in Christ's name. Amen.